The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. So it's time for the week trending. We're joined today by Orla Ryan, news correspondent with the journal.ie and Jack Horgan-Jones, political reporter from the Irish Times. Orla, one of the stories of the week that we got a lot of response to was this Garda fitness test that apparently a lot of applicants were failing, that they weren't able to do the obstacle course quickly enough. I wonder where they've been asked whether they could cycle a bike and whether they could keep up with the Green Party leader Eamon Ryan as he cycles around. Yeah, indeed. I don't know if you actually have to cycle as part of the fitness test, but maybe they'll have to add that in if it's not currently a requirement. Um, yeah, so basically there was a story during the week about Eamon Ryan, as many people probably know, he doesn't use a ministerial car, unlike most of the other ministers. He generally cycles. You'd often see him out and about in Dublin City. So he's going to have guard protection like all of the other ministers, but because he's on a bike, the guard is also going to be on a bike. It would be a bit silly maybe to have a car following him a few paces back like the Tour de France or something. A um, bit of a safety car. But, Sorry, um, there was a case years ago famously in the UK. I think Boris Johnson used to cycle to work. And, he used to zip line to work, I believe. Well, he got stuck on <laughs> the zip line, but he actually used to have the car following him about 50 yards behind, which was pointed out he was mm. doing it as an environmental stunt. And yet there was a car having to follow him, which was billowing its right. exhaust into the atmosphere. I'd say Eamon's uh, environmental cr- Johnson, credentials are better. I refuse I know, to believe that. him misleading the public, what? Um, <laughs> but uh, no, yeah, yeah seemingly um, he won't have it all the time. But when he's on a bike, it make, make, might make sense if a guard presence is there, that it's a guard on a bike rather than a guard in a car. But he said it will depend on the circumstances. Some, sometimes there will be a car, you know, maybe whatever, a few feet back as he cycles around the place. Yeah, of course, they better not be cycling too abreast or that then there would be all sorts of people giving out if they're blocking the cars on the road. Well, there's no shortage of people who give out about cyclists and about Eamon Ryan and about Eamon Ryan as a cyclist. But <laughs> I think actually sometimes a close reading of this story by, uh, by our colleague Senna Maloney in The Independent a couple of days ago does suggest that sometimes actually there will be a Garda car behind him, Tour de France style, as mm-hmm. he pedals his way through the streets of Dublin, which is pretty comic when you think about it, you know, and probably um, goes some way to raising the security concerns because it would make him so visible as well. This kind of little car trundling along behind a man on a bike. It's not going to take any uh, wannabe assassins of Eamon Ryan too long to figure out which government minister it is. <laughs> We don't want to be too glib about the idea of wannabe assassins, do we? Because there is mounting concern about the amount of harassment that politicians are taking, not just online either. That's true. And look, I know that this is a lighthearted story, but you're right. We shouldn't forget the fact that, you know, the fact that all cabinet ministers are getting Garda protection is something that happened in the recent past. It used to be just the Taoiseach, the Taunish and the Minister for Justice. And this was an operational uh, decision made by Garda Commissioner Drew Harris. So it's not something emanating from within the political system mm-hmm. itself. It is something clearly that is taken on foot of intelligence or other security uh, concerns that have been passed all the way up the line to the Garda Commissioner. So it is serious and it is worth reminding ourselves that, you know, we have been lucky in this country to escape some of the worst of the kind of backlash against politicians that we've seen in other parts of the world, most notably the, the US, but also the UK, where obviously we can't forget we've had two, two, two yeah. parliamentarians murdered in the last uh, four or five years. Um, and, you know, we shouldn't, I suppose, be glad you're right and we shouldn't be forgetful that these people at all levels within the Oireachtas. My colleague Jennifer Bray had a piece uh, last Saturday in the Irish Times detailing the level of abuse both online and offline that um, female politicians were subject to and that's something across the board. So yes, it is, It is. you know, it's it's comic to think of Eamon Ryan cycling around the place followed by a Garda car but there's a serious issue underlying all of this. Okay, I wonder how Jacinta Ardern would have been treated in Irish politics or like, given that Internationally, she seems to get a response, certainly in social media, of people deifying her on the one hand or 
absolutely castigating and almost hating her on the other hand. Yeah, since she announced the fact that she is going to stand down, there's been um, demonstrations outside Parliament, some people holding up signs saying, ding dong, the witch is dead. Um, very often female politicians are seem to be called a witch for whatever reason. Um, I think some people just don't like powerful women. Other people are there kind of coming out saying Jacinda was the best Prime Minister we've ever had. She saw us through the pandemic, the um, terrible Christchurch mosque attacks, all of those things. She Where said she that put she was, a ban on guns in with a very, very quickly, didn't she? She was very speedy with a lot of things like that and I think she got a lot of results. A lot of people don't like her, a lot of people do like her, but I think from the outside looking in, it certainly looked like, wow, you know, you can actually make things happen very quickly. Again, if you look to the US and it's a very different kettle of fish, but how difficult it's been to bring in any form of like gun reform in there and she was just like one event happened and she's like, well, this is not happening again. So whether you, you like her or you don't like her, she was a very effective Prime Minister, I would say. What's your assessment, Jack, from this big distance because we don't know an awful lot of the intricacies of New Zealand. Yes, no, I'm not I'm not the world's foremost analyst of uh, Kiwi politics, I have to confess. Um, I think that Ellen Coyne had a really good piece in the Irish Independent today talking about Jacinda Ardern and the fact that like women politicians, female politicians, I should say, are often unable to escape that kind of tag and that burden and that they're always assessed, not as politicians, as male politicians are assessed, but as female politicians and that they're failures or successes in turn are branded as the failure or successes of female politicians. Mm -hmm. And I would hope that, you know, we're moving past that. But like there is much evidence to suggest that Jacinda Ardern will always be assessed or, you know, in in the round as a female politician. So I would hope that we can move move past that because she was, as as Orla rightly points out, in her own right, Mm -hmm. a very decisive um, leader during some really kind of some really tough pinch points yeah, for, for BBC World got in trouble uh, the other day. They had, you know, a headline saying, can women have it all after she resigned? And rightly, there was a backlash. I don't think you, if a male Prime Minister said, actually, you know, I've had a good run at it, but I'm stepping down. Like, can think, men yeah. have it all? Can they have children? I don't think many male politicians would have the, the level of insight it takes to, to say, look, no, I am I am burnt out. You know, I yeah. think that a lot, certainly a lot of the male politicians it, I know are driven by this kind of megalomaniacal <laughs> desire to always, you know, be on top of the political I tree. Think and Waterford I think, Whispers summed it up very well. They had confusion as politician not doing everything to cling to power yes. was the headline yesterday <laughs> where it was like, it just seemed like, well, why, why wouldn't you stay? Why wouldn't you stay? Oh, it's because you think you're going to lose. She's like, no, I just, I, I actually, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, so she hasn't, she hasn't had time to marry her partner. You know, she obviously was very high profile. I think she was the first head of government to have a, have a kid while in office. The second after Benazar Bhutto, yeah. Thanks. And um, she she hasn't even had time to manage her partner, or marry, marry her partner, manage her partner. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so that, that, that just goes to show the yeah. level of okay. imposition. I wonder, will she be headhunted by international multinationals now to become a board member on the basis of the international fame that she has achieved? I suspect she'll do well on the speaking circuit, yeah. Maybe she'll I'd run say she won't Boris go Johnson, short, short of money anyway. She'll, yeah. be, she'll do but, all right. Well, maybe she should get gigs. You see, Boris Johnson has pulled in something like 1.2 million since he left as British Prime Minister. Much, much, much more than he was making as Prime Minister, of course, yeah. A multiple of it, which, mm. yes, okay. Which is fairly one of the reasons why he didn't want to go back after Liz <laughs> Truss. He didn't want to give up on that. Uh, do either of you go to rugby internationals? I don't, I have to confess. Jack? I have done in my time, but not for a while, and partially because the the atmosphere was not great, you know, and that's one What's of the your that we Are you com- joining with the, the Irish Times has got an enormous amount of reader reaction to yeah. the announcement by the IRFU that is going to continue serving drinks during games at Lansdowne Road. And I have to admit, this is a bit of a bugbear of mine. I go to watch a match 
I can have a few drinks beforehand. I can have mm. a few drinks afterwards. I've done so many times over the years and have greatly enjoyed it. But while the match is on, I want to watch the match and not having to be getting out of the way of somebody trying to carry back a tray of four pints and then going out 10 minutes later to go to the toilet or have another tray of pints. Yeah, but let me, I think the, the point of this, what's underlying all this, is the fact that notwithstanding the very uh, strong torrent of criticism that has come the way of the IRFU and the, the, the people who run the Aviva Stadium over it, like they're, they're stuck in this because they've sold the pouring rights to a large, um, a large uh, a brewery. So like they can't just reverse out of this. And uh, they probably signed up to a multi-year deal. So I don't think we should expect this to be going anywhere anytime soon. And like I think that it's unavoidable that it does really affect the atmosphere. Like if you go to to, um, a big All-Ireland match, the atmosphere is markedly better than it is at a, at a rugby because they're not serving points well, for a multitude of reasons on. but you'd have to think that's one of the big ones yeah but you'd imagine so the IRFU has done a survey on the back of this and they um, questioned 744 people of that 68% of people would not support a ban on alcohol so it kind of I'm not sure how many people you know they had to ask to get to that or do they just uh, pick a sample but they've said you know actually most of the people we've spoken to said we don't want to stop serving alcohol. Yes, it diminishes the atmosphere to a certain degree. About a quarter of people said they felt that alcohol sales did diminish the atmosphere. But then, you know, whatever, 68% said, but we still want you to serve it there because it would be stranger, you know, it'd be less atmospheric if it wasn't there. But could they change it a little bit, you know? I mean, could they have specific windows? I mean, the most yeah. obvious ones are before and after and during half time, which is the way it is in Croke Park. Well, the know? Irish Times then kind of did a mini survey of its readers and there was one guy, um, Thomas Ralph from Cork, who, who wrote in to say that at their recent Australia match, he counted 18 times standing up to let someone in and out of his row primarily to get drink and he was just kind of saying if you can't go 40 or 50 minutes without a pint yes the queues are long at half time but surely you're there to watch the rugby so if you're getting up 18, 20 times to let someone else out that's obviously going to diminish your enjoyment One of the good suggestions that came in to the Irish Times about this was um, making the schoolboy stand Bigger and doing more schoolboy uh, and schoolgirl, obviously. Certainly not giving them drink for the match. Well, exactly, because they won't. They won't be drinking. And generally speaking, I remember going to um, going to uh, internationals on schoolboy tickets back in the in the dim mists of time, and like there was a great atmosphere in the schoolboy section. Sometimes you'd even see some of your teachers school there. Schoolboy and schoolgirl <laughs> school section school girl in section, modern era, course, please. Yeah. What about going to concerts section. though? Do concerts now actually have drink rules in a lot of venues? Any ones I've been to recently, it's it served as normal. I don't know. Maybe other places are bringing in certain restrictions. Well, certainly if you go to a play, you're not going to be allowed to start bringing drinks true. in and out. You're yeah. supposed to sit there and enjoy the play. Yeah, but definitely. Obviously Concert people are kind of circulating yeah. a bit more as well. Depends though, on the if you're standing, yeah. 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 If you're yeah. seated, it is quite annoying if you have to let someone in and out. And I'd say at the National Concert Hall, for example, I was there a few weeks ago, it was for a comedy gig, not for music. Mm. But you're not allowed to go out to the bar mm. in between intervals. And again, that might be a venue specific thing. Mm. But obviously, if you're, you're standing up in the three at the whatever, core of all this, though, range. is the concern really that like people are going there to drink as opposed to watch the match, you know, and that's yeah. and that gets in the way of people in a very literal, literal sense who are there to watch the match. Yeah, a listener says, "Easy knowing you're not a cyclist, Matt, as you're allowed to be two abreast as a cyclist." I know that, and I am a cyclist. Although I have to admit, I haven't taken to the bike in a while now because I'm too damn nervous of cars and trucks and buses on our streets. Uh, I know you can go two abreast, but I also know and the point I was making is that the amount of motorists who give out about people cycling two abreast mm-hmm. is enormous. We need to take a break. We'll be back with more of the week trending after this. <laughs> The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. 
The week trending, we have Jack Horgan-Jones, political reporter with the Irish Times with us, and Orla Ryan, news correspondent of the journal.ie. Orla, the next story we have is a very distressing one, but a very important one, I think, coming from the UK, about how a serial rapist was operating within the Metropolitan Police in London for decades, it seems, and committed how many crimes? Yeah, so David Carrick, he... Uh, that we know of, at least 12 women have come forward to date and there are 49 charges of rape and sexual assault over the course of 18 years. So, and that's what we know of. Officers have come out and said, we believe there are more women. It's just that 12 have come forward to date. Um, He's been described as one of the worst sex offenders in modern history and that more is yet to come out. So it's just, I mean, it's terrifying, really. So was he hiding in plain sight, though, effectively, as a member? And was he abusing his position as a member of the force to actually intimidate women into silence? A lot of stuff has come out now. There were reporting restrictions until he pleaded guilty, but we're getting more details now. Like he would, there's a, a picture in The Guardian where he's posing um, with his gun and you know in full police regalia and he sent it apparently to at least one woman saying you know by the way I have a gun and I could kill you and cover it up no one would ever suspect plant drugs was another one there was another one Um, one woman tried to break up with him she said I'm going to he said I'm going to plant drugs on you you're going to get arrested who's going to believe you over a police officer Um, there were other stories of him urinating on women of him locking them up naked in a closet like all of these horrendous horrendous things um, and we'll all remember the outrage when Sarah Everand was, was murdered in 2021. And in July 2021, when Wayne Cousins pled, pleaded guilty to that. The, and he was, was another member of the he Met. He was another member of the Met. The police force, Christina Dick, the commissioner at the time, came out and said, you know, this can never happen again. This is absolutely awful. How could we have not known this? That very same month, a woman um, lodged a complaint of an alleged rape against um, against this man and against Carrick. And he was not suspended. He was taken off certain duties and his gun was removed, but he was just, he, he wasn't suspended. Nothing happened. Um, a couple of months later, she withdrew her claim for, for various reasons, but nothing happened. It was in the middle of this outrage. They had a rape claim against another um, police officer and nothing was done. His gun was taken away. Nothing else was done. And then in October 2021, another woman came forward and said, he raped me too. And that's when it opened up the sequence of events that led to his arrest finally. It's an absolutely shocking story from the UK. OK, let's let's move on to other things which are less upsetting. Well, tell us about the story, Jack, about consumers here in Ireland selling Christmas vouchers online. I'm not surprised by this. So I think the examiner had this story during the week and effectively there seems to be a roaring trade being done online. People selling, you know, hotel vouchers or vouchers for particular shops or those one for all vouchers at slightly marked down rates to their uh, to their to their headline um, um, value. It's a bit like invoice discounting. It is a little business. bit, yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised because, you know, you get these things as a gift and they're fantastic and all the rest of it, but then you realise they can have a kind of limited utility and you kind of, you, you think to yourself, I wouldn't mind the cash actually. So you put it up online and you sell it for, for a little bit so, of it. So for example, you get a hotel gift voucher. Yeah. And you might say, well, that's lovely. And it's worth, say, for example, there was a well, Donegal hotel voucher mentioned, yeah. 300 euro, been sold for 250 you probably reckon, well, I just have to spend more money well, exactly, to get yeah. to and the this, this, yeah. this, happened, this happened to me, me and my wife recently. I won't say who gave us the gift. A very generous gift of, you know, a couple hundred quid for a, a voucher. And we were thinking that's a, that's just a demand to spend another four or five hundred quid once we get there, you know. And, and like, so unfortunately, the reality... Deal, did you? I can't remember what we did with it, actually. I think he we made... Sold. I think <laughs> we made <laughs> so we made, we made sold that's it not all. a no. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to blame my wife for that one. Um, but yeah, I, I always think these vouchers must have a very funny existence. Like, I mean, we got them uh, from our employers at the start of the start of Christmas, you know, and it starts life as, you know, 
of buying salubrious Christmas presents and then towards the end of January it's being used to go to the Middle Isle and Aldi mm. and Lidl and all the rest of it and buy, buy groceries and that's where it ends up where it ends life but there is obviously some consumer uh, rights issues and some safety issues online as well because it wouldn't take much to kind of make up a fake that's search and, and sell it on, yeah. on eBay or on Dundeal you know and the consumer watch has come out and said well you need to be careful you might think oh great I'm getting a hundred euro one for all voucher for 80 quid or whatever it might be but, a fiver on it or something yeah there could be a fiver left on it or maybe the person it's technically in someone else's name so you might have trouble actually spending it if you go to spend it so all of these things that you know you need to be careful about Orla how much would you spend on a hot chocolate and a Claire? 16 euro match. Would you spend that much, would you? <laughs> no, really? I, would not, I would not. Uh, no, that, that is the cost of what it is in uh, Bewley's on Grafton Street. Um, a piece in Dublin Live the other day, um, someone went in and they were shocked and appalled that they got the bill for, I think it was 22 euro altogether, but they got a couple of other bits. But the hot chocolate itself was 8 euro and the, the bun beside it was 7.60, which is extortionate by any by any rate. A regular hot chocolate as well. Mm. God, I'd hate to see the... But I think uh, it had marshmallows on top and like a little... Yeah. It looked nice, but... It was still just a regular. Did it come hot in a real cup or in a paper cup? I I think it came in a real cup. At least I'd be that. wanting like a tall glass with yeah. that, you know, and a yeah. long. I'd want you to keep you want, the cup. For you eight want euro. all bells and whistles for yeah. eight euros, considering so, it's more than the significantly more than the cost of a pint. Yeah, exactly. Very expensive. And as um, the the journalist pointed out in the article, if you go into Tesco or wherever and you get the little sachets of Bewley's hot chocolate, which apparently has ten servings. It's like four euro for that one packet. So the fact that so it's forty eight euro cent a serving, <laughs> yeah, which is you know obviously it's probably going to taste nicer when it's you know all put together and has the marshmallows and everything in it, but it's still pretty extortionate for a hot chocolate. Okay, what has Bewley said in defence of its prices? Basically said that they use they use you know fair trade products and that it's you know carefully curated and it's basically kind of a, a treat that it's used. They put in marshmallows, orange chocolate on the top. That it's you know a whole experience and that it's been part of their menu for many years. That it's kind of an iconic part of the menu. I have to admit I've never had it myself, but they just kind of said, look, it's a treat. It is what it is. It's fair trade products. It's not that expensive in the grand scheme of things, but I think a lot of people would disagree with that. Okay, but John, isn't there an issue here, Jack, that they'll price themselves out of the market yeah. if they get too expensive, but if people want to pay that, then let them pay it. It's a choice. If you want a cheaper hot chocolate, go somewhere else on Grafton Street or one of the streets off Grafton Street. That's true, and I suppose that's the logic that was rolled out um around budget time last year when they had those complaints about gouging a hotel room prices that it was what the market could bear to pay. But I suppose you're only catering to a certain end of the market and Bewley's, I, I would imagine, with this offering is catering to naive tourists who probably go to Bewley's because it's Bewley's and it's storied and it's pointed out in all the various guidebooks and they don't necessarily know that you can go and get uh, an equally nice or even perhaps better hot chocolate elsewhere in town for, for less. And I think that they do themselves no favours here. And Paul Murphy makes the point, uh, the Socialist Party TD makes this point in the Dublin Live article where he says that this is an industry that is campaigning for the extension of the 9% fat rate cut, Mm -hmm. which they've made, uh, you know, the the whole centre of their lobbying campaign, not just for the last budget just gone, but for years on end. And these kind of things travel and they really undermine political confidence and they make it harder for the politicians, even those who are so inclined to support things like this, to turn around and extend a tax holiday, a quite generous tax holiday, Mm -hmm. a carve-out that was given during COVID times, which have clearly passed and we see the consumer economy roaring back. So it does undermine those claims of hardship that they're looking to use to further the campaign to keep the 9%. Listener says, a Kinsale, I recently paid €7.95 for a latte and croissant in a cafe, served on a paper plate and a takeaway cup. I was horrified. Just to finish, Orla Ryan, what's this story about Kate Moss being a wagon? (laughs) 
<laughs> a very enjoyable video resurfaced the other day. So it's a it's a video, an interview she did with Vogue back in 2021. Um, but it was her 49th birthday the other day. So it was reshared online. And it's basically Christy Turlington, another uh, model, asking her, God, you know, myself and Naomi Campbell, we always call you the little wagon. I don't even remember why we do that. What is, what's the origin of that? And Kate basically says, well, you know, it was from back in the day in the 90s when we'd be in Ireland. And um, I believe wagon means, you know, when you're drunk and we'd often be, you know, drunk and having a good time when we were in Ireland. So that's how it stems from. But if you actually look into it a little bit deeper, um, back in 2016, Naomi Campbell did an interview with the Sunday Times and the wagon reference came up again. Um, if people uh, will remember, she was engaged to, um, his name escapes me Adam from Clayton. Adam Clayton, Clayton. Yeah. Adam Clayton yes. in the 90s. So they were all apparently out with you too. Ali Houston was there and seemingly referred to Naomi, Christie and Kate as the wagons and kind of passed this off as like, oh, it's because you're fun and you live life to the fullest and you have a great time. Um, was I, it affectionate I, or was, she, it, was there a bit of shade been thrown? The, it would appear there was some shade, but maybe it was all very genuine and she has a different meaning for the word wagon as opposed to it being a difficult woman or whatever other people uh, might think it's it is. very charitable interpretation of what <laughs> Houston may, may have intended <laughs> back do, in 1996. Yeah, I do enjoy that 30 years later, they're still like, what a lovely name. I'm so <laughs> glad she called me that. Yeah. Like, mm, just Order Ryan it. from the journal.ie, Jack Horgan Jones from the Irish Times. Thank you. The last word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today FM.